lights up there because I can see some, I can see y'all are so rested that I don't want, hey Hannah, hey guys, um, no falling asleep, so let's get, a, let's get a few lights on. I just heard that I had permission to start a hunting net group. I can turn that into a ministry. In season. Okay, all right. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Everybody's good. Five people are good. Um, I did feel like I heard the Lord say when we were worshiping, like, I got you. I got you. I got you. So just repeat after me. Are you ready? God, you got me. God, you got me. And turn to your neighbor and say, God has you. God has you. God has got you. That's a good word right there, huh? We can stop right there. Okay, I'm going to turn on my little timer here so I don't, trust me, I can endure much longer than you can from this position. So uh, any VT1ers that were there last night? Woo! How was it? Good? Good stuff? All right, so we have a few VT1ers. And then how many um, Tim Hawkiners last night? Tim Hawkiners? Yes, we were at the comedy night here at church last night, had some good laughs, had some good times. You know, it is good to laugh. Proverbs 17, 22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine. Amen? I don't know about you, but I value joy, and I value laughter, and it is so important. So it is medicine to our soul. It is medicine to our hearts, and you know, ain't that true? Nick, you know a little bit about, I mean, Nick, Nate, you know a little bit about Laughter and humor, don't you, buddy? Oh, boy, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so I was kind of thinking about uh, the season I've been in. Um, about two months ago, I kind of found myself lacking some joy. Um, maybe in a little bit, experiencing just a little bit of frustration, a little bit of weariness, and just kind of tiredness. And it was a Wednesday, and uh, I cover prayer on Wednesdays. And I can, I can just remember just saying, Lord, I'm just... I'm experiencing frustration and weariness, tiredness, and I don't know where my joy is. And I felt like the Lord, you know, really spoke this to me, uh, took me to, uh, well, I just felt like he said, you're tired and you're weary because you're not fighting the good fight. Because you're not fighting the good fight, you're weary. And then I found 1 Timothy 1.18 says, this command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And I felt like I heard the Lord say, you're tired because you're fighting the wrong fight. And you know, the, the battles that God has purposed us to fight, He has equipped us to win. So when you're in a battle, and believe me, when you can be in a spiritual battle and it still not be a battle God has purposed you to fight. I mean, we've got that first, I mean, Ephesians 6, 12, 2 Corinthians 3, 2, that says the battle, the war that we wage is not against flesh and blood, right? But you can actually engage in spiritual battles that God has not purposed you to fight in. And as a result, you can end up exhausted, tired, joyless, frustrated. 2 Samuel 11.1, 1. y'all are familiar with the story about King David. We know where one of big King David's sins uh, happened in his life and where he fell. You familiar with that story? 
Well, that whole story begins out. It says, in the springtime, when kings went out to battle. And then it goes on to say, but David stayed home. And David walked on his roof. I'm assuming it was a flat pitch roof. He was cruising on his roof, and behold, he saw something. And I just want to tell you that the battles that God has purposed you for, even if it's on the front line taking real live bullets, is safer than walking on a flat pitched roof in the cool of the day. Ask David. <laughs> David was actually equipped to kill, to defeat the Ammonites. And he would have been victorious. But instead, he did not engage in the battle that God had purposed him and found himself distracted with the battle that the enemy provided for him. See, the reality was, in that season, in that moment, David was not equipped to win that battle with lust. That's not an excuse for lust. That's not an excuse for the adultery. That's not an excuse for the sin that he committed. But the reality is this. He would have never even been in that temptation if he was fighting the battle that God had purposed him to fight in his life at that very moment. And what happens is, is when we're in that place, when we're not fighting the battle that God has purposed for us, some of the symptoms, and if you look later on in the story, if you look at the confrontation, Nathan comes to David. Remember, Nathan comes to David, and Nathan begins to tell him a story about someone that took sheep, about a rich man that took someone's sheep. And David is so righteously in, in, in a place of justice and righteous anger and justice. He said, man, that person should be killed. And then Nathan says, that was you. You had everything, and you took another man's wife. Not only did you take, I mean, if you look at the trail of what he had to go through to cover his tracks, I'm sure he was stressed. I'm sure he was anxious. I'm sure there were some sleepless nights there. I mean, look at the finagling. Look at the hard work to get Uzziah or Uriah. He brings him home from the battlefield. He cleans him up. He sends him home with a gift and says, go home, be with your wife. And what does he do? He sleeps on the king's porch with the king's permission, with some bottles of wine and some fruit and all that, to go home and have a good evening with his wife, which is completely legal, by the way, to enjoy your wife after being out in battle all the time. He decides to sleep on the king's porch. And David said, oh, that didn't work. Plan B, I'm going to get him drunk. So he gets him absolutely drunk. He sends him home to go to be with his wife. And he never makes it home. He decides, I'm not going there. And this is his conclusion. How can I go home and sleep in my house with my wife when my men are out in the open fields? When my God, when the tabernacle is, is actually in the tent. I'm sorry, not the tabernacle. The presence of God is resting in the tent. See, he was so focused on his battle, on the battle that God had called them, that God had called them to that he refused to be distracted by anything else. And so some of the signs that you might be fighting or engaged in the wrong battle, here are a few signs that I wrote down. Some of these are from firsthand experience. And if you look at David's life, you can see just a list of things that, that followed him engaging in the wrong battle. Exhausted, weary. Faith is wavering and love growing cold. Hard time resisting temptations. You're more focused fighting against the enemy than you are fighting for God's purposes. 
There's a difference there. You're more focused fighting against than you are for. A trail of broken relationships. And, of course, we see all the deception that David was involved in. So it's it's important. Not only do we need to fight the right battles, we need to fight the right battles the right way. That's the good fight. The good fight is fighting the right battle the right way. And last week when Allison led us in praises the breakthrough, as we were worshiping last week, I said, that's it. That's it. Praise is the breakthrough. Praise is the right way. Worship is the right way to fight the battles that God has purposed us to fight. I want to talk about two battles that God has purposed all of us to fight. I'm not saying these, aren't, these are not the only, it's not an exclusive list. These are not, not the only battles that you'll be faced with as you walk in this life. But here are two battles that each and every one of us will have to fight. The first battle that we need to fight is the battle of our identity. Knowing that we are sons and daughters of God. That's the first battle that we must successfully fight. We've got to win that battle. You have to win the battle of your identity. Who are you? You've got to win that battle. The second battle is this. Our assignment on earth as it is in heaven. And that's going to be the focus next week. This week I just want to focus on winning the battle of our identity. Next week we're going to talk about winning the battle of our assignment. How do we actually fulfill our assignment co-laboring with Christ to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, we're going to talk about that next week. So before we fill, fulfill the assignment, the what God has called us to do, we have to know the who. We have to know our identity. 1 Peter 2.9. I'm going to go 1 Peter 2.9. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Exodus 19, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. Mitch, can you open this for me? I have a hard time with this one. Thanks, babe. I hope I don't kick that over. Okay, so you guys are opened up in Exodus, right? I'm going to read 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you notice the order in this verse? You are so that you may. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's own possession. This is, more, this is about your identity. This is about who you are. And it goes on, so that you may. And so that order is extremely important. In fact, Satan completely understands the significance of you winning the battle of your identity. He knows that if he can keep you from discovering your real identity, he doesn't have to spend a whole lot of time distracting you from God's assignment in your life. If the enemy can keep you from discovering your real identity, it's likely that you will never fulfill God's assignment for your life. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinks within his heart, so he is. Our destiny is connected to our identity. We will ultimately live out who we believe we are. All right, so now, if you would, let's look at that Exodus passage. Let me get there. Give me one second. Y'all are there, right? Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. Everybody okay out there? 
I think I need some bigger print too. Lee, I can relate with you. Okay, here we go. Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God in the Lord. So just a little bit of context here. They had just come out of Egypt. They haven't been out of Egypt very long. I think a couple months at this point. Moses is going up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. He's saying, I want you to tell this to the who? The sons of Israel. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to tell the slaves. They're not slaves of Egypt anymore. They're sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if indeed you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests. You shall be a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. If you just kind of look down in verse 8, halfway through verse 8, it says, And the Lord has spoken, and they, all Israel, this is how they reply, And all the Lord has spoken, we will do. So right there you get invitation. I don't know if you saw the connection between the verse we just read and that Second Peter passage. There's a slight difference in the, the Peter passage, being in the New Covenant, what God has done for us. It says what? It doesn't say you shall be a people for God's own possession. You shall be a royal priesthood. What does it say? You are. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's own possession. You are a holy nation. So God has given an invitation to who? The entire Israelites, all of the Israelites. He's saying, if you obey my voice, you shall be my own possession. You shall be a kingdom of priests. And look, skip on over with me to uh, Exodus 20, verse 18. So how are they going to reply? What's the Israelites' reply to God? Verse 18 says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. That's the first indication. They stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Y'all, this is a tragic, tragic verse story in the Bible God is actually given an invitation not to one tribe to be a kingdom of priest but to the entire nation to be a kingdom of priest he is given an invitation for the entire nation to be his own possession to be a priest you the song that we sang they're in the one they're a part of there I want to be a Levite I want to be, never mind. <laughs> I want to be a Levite. Why, what did the Levites do? The Levites' main responsibility was worship, was to minister to God. And in that place where they experienced God, they experienced relationship, they experienced, communi they experienced communion. God has given an invitation for them all to be Levites, a kingdom of priests. And this is what they said, no, 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 no. God scares us. Moses, you actually go to God. You actually tell us what God is doing. And we'll, we'll do what you say God is saying to do. So God has given them an invitation to be, and their response was, 
we will do. See, when we try to do without being, we end up with a lot of doo-doos. That's my best Tim Hawking impersonation right there. I mean, that's, I worked really hard on that, and I got five laughters. So let me try that again. When you, when you start with doing, when you put the doing before the being, you end up with a lot of doo-doos. In fact, thank you, Tulio. In fact, there's like 217. So God says, if you obey my voice, you shall be my people. God says, okay, you don't want that? Here's 217 dues. Good luck with that. So they spent their life trying to do, trying to do, trying to do, trying to do. Y'all, we've got to get the being down first. We've got to get our identity, who we are as sons and daughters, before we get over into focusing on our assignment. It's the heart of God is relationship. That is his heart. It's important. It's important. Actually, our assignment is so humanly impossible that we have to know our royal identity. We have to know it. I mean, our, his kingdom come. Piece of cake, right? Everybody's just seeing his kingdom come to every realm that you're in, the schools, the workplace, your home. His kingdom come. Piece of cake, right? On earth as it is in heaven. Whatever heaven looks like, that's what we want our realm, whatever influence we're part of, to begin to mimic and mirror. Yeah, just, it's really easy. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, open the eyes of the blind. Piece of cake, right? Can you say humanly impossible? He's not calling us to live a humanly possible life. He is calling us to discover our supernatural, our royal identity as sons and daughters of God, who the supernatural one abides and lives in us, we, that, we, that is released and that is experienced through communion and through covenant. And that is released. And that comes out of who you are. That comes out of our place of identity, knowing that we are sons and daughters of God. Before Jesus saved the world, he had to secure his identity. Before Jesus could save the world, he had to secure his identity. Would you look with me in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 3? Or your electronic devices, as I refer to them. That is New Testament. Everybody doing okay? All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Again, who led Jesus into the wilderness? Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for what purpose? To be tempted by who? That's interesting. But we know this, the battles that God has purposed us to fight, he is what? He has equipped us to win, right? God has never called you a battle to fight that he hasn't fully equipped you to be victorious and to win. So let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. I mean, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're going to just read this together. Then Jesus was led by the, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on the concerning you on the hands, they will bear you up, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil again took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. You guys, just look there. What were the first two two temptations about? If you are the Son of God. Not once, but twice. What was the last temptation about? I will give you all of these kingdoms and all of their glory if you what? Bow down and worship me. Why did Jesus come? So that the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdom of heaven. I mean, there was the purpose of his coming. And Satan was trying to say, I will give you all the kingdoms because they've been handed over to me, all the kingdoms of this world and all the kingdoms and all their glory. I will give them to you if you will bow down to me. First two temptations, it was a battle over his identity. The third temptation was a battle over Jesus' assignment, the purpose that God had sent Jesus to come to earth. Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Amen? Is that what we're not moving towards? The kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And it goes on to say, he will reign forever and ever. Isaiah says there will be no end to the increase of his government. It doesn't say there'll be no end to his government. It says there'll be no end to the increase of his government. So that means from the time that Jesus died and rose from the grave, his government is ever increasing. It's never stopped increasing. It's getting bigger. It's gaining momentum. It's, it's having greater influence in this world today. And it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. But what, what perspective you're seeing it from, it's hard to see that. It's hard to see actually today, this moment, the kingdom is expanding. Right now, the kingdom is growing. Jesus came for that purpose. Okay, y'all all right? In reality, if you take a look at this whole story, Satan completely overplays his hands. He actually, actually say, the enemy reveals his main tactics and his main strategies to cause us to stumble. He puts it all right out there. He's trying to get Jesus, tempt Jesus out of his true identity. He's trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut to his assignment. And he tries to do what? He tries to do the, the shortcut of his assignment. What does he use to try to tempt him out of that? Worship. All right, now check this out. Your identity. If you secure your identity, all right, it's most likely you're going to fulfill your assignment that God has for you. And what is it in all of it that he's after? Even in the midst of that, he said, hey, I couldn't get his identity. I'm going to try to get his worship. Because it's the right battle. The fight over your identity is a right fight. The fight, battling over the assignment that God has in your life is the right fight. And he also knows the way you're victorious in both of those is through worship. I can't get his identity. I can't get his assignment. Maybe I can get his worship. If I get his worship, he'll lose his identity, and he won't fulfill his assignment. So we know the enemy's schemes. He's after your identity. He's after your assignment. He is after your worship. He wants to steal your worship. 
He'll try to take your worship any way that he can because he knows worship is the key. And that's why I said, hey, just bow down, bow down. And I love Jesus' response. Did you catch Jesus' response? This is kind of putting it nicely. Go, Satan. <laughs> For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and serve him only. So Jesus' response is the key to winning the battle over our identity and over our assignment. Worship, 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 worship. You want to discover who you are? Praise is the breakthrough. You want to fulfill your assignment? Praise is the breakthrough. And I propose to you that it was worship is how Jesus won his battle over his identity. I heard a story by Bill Johnson not too long ago. I don't have all the details. I'll get them, I'll gather them, and I'll bring them back next week. But he, was, he talked about a, a British test pilot who um, was flying a plane, and as he was up in the, in the sky, he noticed that a rat was chewing on the fuel line. And so he had a decision to make. He thought to himself, you know, I don't think I have time to actually land the plane before he gets through the fuel line and the plane crashes. So his other option was, I'm going to take the rat up higher. I'm going to go up higher where there's no oxygen. So the pilot, the pilot takes the plane, and he shoots up, and he goes up higher. And at that point where the oxygen is less and less and less and less and less, the rat begins to get a little bit confused, a little bit disoriented, and eventually the rat dies. The rat dies. Yeah, and I'm thinking about this. What's this big deal about the worship? Because you know what? Snakes don't jump real high, Right? Worship takes us above the snake line. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, hey, worship him only. Satan can't be in the presence of worship. He can't go that high. He gets disoriented. He gets confused. And he flees. Subject yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. And the devil will flee. How do we subject ourselves to God? How do we submit ourselves to God? It's when he's higher and we're lower. And we're looking up. And we're worshiping him. It's called above the snake line. That's how we beat the enemy. That's how we find our identity. That's how we fulfill God's purposes. If you're still in John chapter 4, just back up just a little bit. What did I say? Matthew. Yes, thank you. So what happened before Jesus went into the wilderness? I know we have some Bible scholars in here. Does anybody remember? What happened right before Jesus was led into the wilderness by the, by the Spirit to be tempted. What happened? He was baptized, right? Anyone in here think that baptism is a pretty good expression of worship? Would you all agree to me that worship is more than musical instruments and singing? Amen? Like, may we never just limit worship to, uh, that is, this is worship, y'all. When we do it corporately, it is powerful. When we can talk a whole message separately on that. It is powerful. But I, I pray that we would never limit a life of worship to music, to singing songs. You know, Jesus, before, before being let out, he was worshiping God. He was actually, he was worshiping God before he went into the wilderness. He was worshiping God when he was in the wilderness. And you know what it says? When he left the wilderness, you know what he left out with? It says he left in the power of the Spirit. How do you leave in the power of the Spirit after you haven't eaten for 40 days and for 40 nights? You worship. You worship. 
And so here's, here's what it looks like. So Jesus comes to be baptized. John the Baptist recognizes Jesus. And John the Baptist is a pretty smart guy. He recognized, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist's response was, no, 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 no. This is not right. I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie your sandals. It is I that need to be baptized by you and not me. Not you be baptized by me. And what did Jesus say? No, permit it. Permit it. This is my act of worship. This is my act of worship to the Father. To be subjected to another man's ministry. God in the flesh subjects himself to another human being's ministry. I don't know if you catch to that, the significance of that. Let me tell you, how can you tell me that you love a God who you can't see when you can't subject yourself to a man or woman that you can see? How can you say you love a God who you can't see when you have a hard time loving your brothers and sisters whom you can see? So God, Jesus, is demonstrating his love to the Father. He's demonstrating an act of humility and an act of subjection. He willingly allows himself to be baptized by John the Baptist. Immediately when he comes up out of the water, it says the spirits, the spirits, the sky opens and the spirit descends upon him as a dove. And this, these words are heard out of heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Are y'all getting this? He's worshiping God. And in the context of worship, he hears the Father's voice that declares who he really is. His true identity came out of the context of worshiping God. Who am I? Who does the world say you are? Who do you say you are? You really want to discover who you are? Get in his presence. Worship him. This revelation of his true identity as a beloved he didn't just say, you're my son. Do what he says. You are my beloved son. You are loved by the father. You are loved. Daughters, you are loved by the father. Sons, you are loved by the father. Not only are you a son, not only are you a daughter, you belong. You have a place in his house. But he is pleased with you. You bring him delight. You bring him pleasure. I don't know about y'all, but I could live off of that for a while. If I know that, and I know that I know that I know that, I don't have to get it from you. Not that I don't want to please you, but that's no longer my lifeline. That's no longer my source. Now you can start walking out of a place of true love, love that says, I will meet your needs at my expense, not lust that says, you're going to meet my needs at your expense. Because when all my needs are met, my need for identity, my need for security, I belong, I have a place, my need for love, it comes out of this place of worship. I am now free to love as I have been loved. This revelation came out of a place of worship. Worship is the key to knowing true identity. And it was Jesus knowing his true identity that empowered him to resist the temptation. What was Jesus' response to the enemy? The enemy was trying to tempt him out of his identity. What was Jesus' response? Ah, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that what? Proceeds out of the mouth of God. What did he just hear the Father say? 
You are my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. That was the fuel. And you know, the interesting thing, the word there doesn't say, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that precedes out of the mouth of God. It says proceeds, which is a present tense verb. The reality is this. I may have heard that I'm God's son five years ago, but if I get in a temptation in a battle today, that bread five years ago may not get me through today's temptation, today's battle. It's a day-to-day walking, hearing the Father's voice, knowing who we are, because we live by the word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he is constantly communicating with us. He is constantly speaking to us. He is constantly revealing to us who we are. All of this, and then Luke 4.14 is where it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Here's what happens. When you fight the right battles in the right way, you're moving in the power of the Spirit. I was in there crying, I'm so tired, Lord. (laughs) I'm so exhausted. I'm so weary. And I don't want to make light of anyone's battle. Please don't hear that. This is me. This is my little world becoming very big. Does it ever happen when your world becomes all like this? And there's a whole big world out there, but all your world is this. That's what happened to me. I got so distracted. I wasn't fighting the right battles that my whole world got so small. I was weary. I was tired. I was exhausted. And that's where I began to realize, I think I'm fighting. I don't think I'm fighting the good fight. Because when you fight the good fight, you get empowered. You get empowered by the Spirit. Jesus left the wilderness empowered by the Spirit. He went in worshiping. He was in it worshiping. And he left empowered by the Spirit. Praise is the breakthrough. All of my days, I want to be a Levite. Anyone else want to be a Levite? Hey, you could be a son or daughter of God. Praise brings us before our creator. If you want, I know we're doing a lot of bouncing around. If you would look at John chapter 4, and we're going to begin to try to wrap this, wrap this up. John chapter 4, I'll just kind of summarize it. We don't, if you don't get there, that's fine. But this is one of the most phenomenal New Testament passages on worship. John chapter 4, verse 23 says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Y'all, God is seeking worshipers. God is actually after, he's actually seeking worshipers. It's not, God is not out there looking for worship. He's actually looking for worshipers. Which that's kind of important, right? He's seeking after you. Who is, who is living a life of worship that will worship Him in spirit and that will worship Him in truth. See, worship is not just something we do. Worship is not just something we do when we clock in through those doors, the music starts, and I'm going to start to worship. Actually, worship, because He's seeking worshipers and not just worship, an act, it's, it's part of who we are. God is after worshipers. He's like, the God who has everything in all the universe that has no needs, that lacks nothing, is looking for something. He is actually seeking, aggressively seeking after those who are worshiping Him, who are true worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. 
So here's the question. Is God an egotist? Is God a self-centered egotist? I mean, on, on different occasions, he says, look, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Okay, we're supposed to seek the, seek the kingdom of God first. Colossians 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on this earth. Okay, set our mind on things above, not on this earth. You shall have, worship me and you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, worship the Lord, have no other gods before him. We got to put him first. We put his kingdom first. We seek the things above first. But if you keep reading, there's some pretty amazing revelations that re reveal the motive in the heart of God. God says, seek the kingdom first. And what happens? All of these things will be added unto you. When he, in that Colossians uh, 3, or, 3 or 2 passage, it says, this, Set your mind on things above, not on the earth. Why? Because it says, your life is hidden in Christ. And when you set your mind on things above, you find Christ. And when you find Christ, guess what you find? Yourself. You know why? Because it says you're hidden in Him. You want to discover who you are? Find Christ. How do you find Christ? Set your mind above. above. So what's God's motive? What's God's motive when He says, Worship me. Have no other gods before me. Put me first. Psalm 115.8 says, it's a, it's, a, it's a passage that's talking about those who worship, those who make idols, and those who worship idols. This is what it says. It says those who make them become like them. Why does God command our worship, yet he gives us a total complete choice because that's what love does. But why does God want us to worship him first and foremost? It's because he knows that when we worship him, we become like him. And what more or what better could God want for you and for me than for us to be like him? There is no better gift that God could give for us than for us to become like him. And worshiping Him is how we become like Him. What we revere, we will resemble. What we behold, we will become. I know y'all are pretty familiar with this 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, but we all, with an unfailed face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It says we are beholding in a mirror. Is a mirror the real thing? It's a reflection, right? We're beholding in a mirror the what? The glory of the Lord. And it goes on to say that we are being transformed into that same image from what? From glory to glory. See, what you behold, you become. And if you are beholding the glory of the Lord, the thoughts and opinions, who God is and who God says you are, you begin to be transformed into that same image. Now, here's an interesting aspect about the mirror. 2 Corinthians 3.12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, what? Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as what? I have been fully known. How do you want to fully be known? You've got to see him for who he really is. And when you see him for who he really is, you become like him. But get this. It, uses, it says, now in a mirror we see dimly. This is really important, you guys. This is why worshiping here on earth in this life is so valuable to God. Do you realize when we're in heaven, it's not going to be a mirror, it's not going to be a reflection, it's not going to be a dimly image of what he's like. Do you realize in heaven we're going to be worshiping face to face? And while you will have a choice, I will tell you, you will have no choice. Amen? Your worship's going to be flat, fall down on your face because you have never seen anything as beautiful, as wonderful, and as marvelous as him. 
But see, right now on this earth, we actually get to offer God something that we will never be able to offer him in heaven. Because right now we see dimly. And what he's saying is, right, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your situation that makes no sense, in the midst of your unanswered prayer, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your wilderness, worship me. I know it's not easy. I know you're not worshiping me out of a feeling. I know you're not worshiping me because I just answered all of your prayers. I know you're not answering me because you got Holy Ghost chill bumps right now. Worship me right now. That is so valuable and so precious to God. And that's why it says you are a kingdom of priests called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's your call. That's what Jesus was doing when he was in the wilderness. Jesus was offering his body as a living sacrifice when he subjected himself to another man, when he fasted for 40 days, when he was baptized. And last time I checked, he had never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And he's fasting and he's submitting and he's being baptized and he's saying he is offering his body as a spiritual sacrifice, which is his offering of worship. That is his offering of worship. So I want to close with this short story. And if, as we close, if the prayer team would mind coming up front. You know, I've, I've shared this story a couple times, but I, I think it's really fitting. When I, was, when I was in seminary, I had a professor. His name was Dr. Bruce Leafblad. I loved Dr. Leaflad. Dr. Leaflad, this is a um, Southern Baptist seminary. Dr. Leaflad was a man of God who was just filled with the Spirit of God, filled with love, just filled with so much goodness. And I, I really loved him. I thought Dr. Leaflad and I had a really deep connection. It probably wasn't as deep as I thought it was. <laughs> Dr. Leaflad, one of my assignments in class was to... Um, go to one of the chapel services, and in the chapel services, kind of write up an assessment of the chapel service. So I'm at the chapel service, and the worship team, they came up, and there was all the worship, and then there was a speaker, and I wrote up the assessment, and I began to... See, I misunderstood the assignment. I thought I was supposed to grade the worship service, not actually do what he was asking, which I didn't understand at the time what he was asking me to do. It was kind of like, where, you know, where was God in all this? I was too busy grading the worship. I was grading the guy that introduced the worshiper. I was grading the person that was speaking and all this. And on my paper, I was like, hey, yeah, everything was really well, but it, I think it was just a performance. It was very performance-oriented. You know, I said a few other things. And on his paper, he, on my paper, when he returns my paper to me, all he says is, I'm sorry you missed him. I don't understand. Dr. Leafblad and I are like this. We think like this. I think he thought a little higher than me, actually. Dr. Leaflag was actually a Louis Giglio's spiritual father. And if you know Louis Giglio, Louis Giglio is a man that has led a movement in worship that's been really powerful. And so what I realized is he's right. I missed him. I missed him. Because I don't come to church to grade the speaker. I don't come to church to grade the worship leader. To, to see what people are wearing or not wearing. I don't come to worship to offer a sacrifice when it feels just right. When the feeling is just right. That's not why I'm here. You know, we come to church 
to get to the throne room. And I went back to his office later on. I said, Dr. Leaflet, I don't understand. And I'll never forget this. He said, Daniel, he goes, every time you come together with a group of believers, you have a responsibility to get to the throne. And he says, if you've got to crawl over dead people to get there, you've got to get there. That's changed the way I look at worship. And there's something so precious to God when you lift your hands and you don't feel like it. When you bow the knee and you don't feel like it. And see, the enemy may be telling you, oh, that's so hypocritical. That's so hypocritical. No, that's exactly when God wants it, when you don't feel like it. It's called a sacrifice of praise, and it's worth a whole lot to God. Because you're not doing it on a feeling. You're saying, God, I know you're worthy. Nothing is lining up in my current situation right now, and I don't feel like it, but you're worthy, God. I will stand here and say, you are worthy. And you worship until the breakthrough comes through. You praise him until the breakthrough comes through. Would y'all stand with me as we close up? I too, I just want to encourage you, like Mitch encouraged us at the beginning of the service, y'all. We, we're worshiping on Wednesday nights. It's weird to come to a church service, a midweek church service, and not really have a program, per se, or, or be entertained. Listen, I'm, I like programs. I like entertainment. But when you come Wednesday night, just come. I tell you what, I'm going to give you an advantage right now. Come in worshiping. Come in Wednesday night worshiping. Because this whole thing, this whole, these first seven weeks is about our first love. Our first ministry, which is worship. And just as a body, just to simplify things in this season and say it's about Him. Yeah, we'll use a whole Wednesday night just to worship and to pray. It's worth it. You know why? Because He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worthy of all of our praise. He's worthy of all of our worship. He's just that good. He's worth that much. And as much breakthrough as you get when you worship, as much as the enemy is defeated when you worship, as much as you discover your identity when you worship, never let that be the motive and the reason why you worship, first and foremost. We worship because of who He is, and He's worthy of all of our worship. So, Father, we just come right now. Just, I just want to invite you, if you have any prayer needs this morning, if you, hey, you're in here this morning and you don't even know that you've been introduced to this King, this Lord, you've spent your life worshiping something other than Him, I'm just going to ask Joe, I'm going to ask some of the team evangelism team to come up. If you're not sure about your relationship, where you stand with this King who died for you so that you could be a royal priesthood, we're going to invite you to come forward this morning. If there's any needs in your physical body, if you want us to agree with you in your physical body and believing for healing in your physical body, please come up. Kevin is right here. Kevin will pray for you. And I just wanted to open up to any needs. Some of y'all made this morning this identity thing. You're, you're stuck because you have not been able to get past who you really are. Like you're trying to do the do's and you have not secured the be. You are called to be a human being first. He says, be and you will do marvelous things. 
So we just invite you to come forward with any of those prayer needs. And you're free to go as we begin to worship, as people come down. God bless you. We thank you for being here this morning. Uh, we love you. We hope to see you on Wednesday night, but we certainly, we certainly love seeing you all. God bless you guys. Feel free to come down if you have any prayer needs.